As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Standard Remotely Podcast. Yes, I'm your host, Ben Standard. cover the Washington Commanders for The Athletic. Uh, hello from... Uh, I'm, I'm a little outside the DMV. I went out uh, west a bit early to uh, well get ahead of the crew for uh, this weekend's game against the Rams. I'm doing a little bit of uh, R&R slash work from out here. Um, but, of course, I needed to uh, get a podcast up for my uh, listeners. I always appreciate everybody uh, checking out the podcast, listening, downloading, all that good stuff. So I, I got to get you guys something. I got something good for you here. Before I left Dodge, I spoke with our guy Logan Paulson to get his feel of kind of where this thing is at right now. You know, what's it like to be on teams that are playing out the string? Uh, decided couldn't wait for the end of the year. Had Logan give us an autopsy on what he thinks has gone wrong with the defense this year. And also we discussed Sam Howell. We'll get to that in a moment here on the Standard Room Only podcast, which, of course, you can get on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you do your podcasting. Um on the Athletic, this new story went up on Monday. I did part one of our sort of 2024 roster overview last week. Today, the defensive side went through all the positions, talked about John Allen situation specifically, also got into special teams as well. We never want to forget those players for sure. So check all that out on the Athletic. Hey, I also wanted to give a shout out to everybody here who uh, reached out to me following the last podcast I did with Grant Paulson and Kevin Sheehan, uh, saying how much they enjoyed it. I thought it was a great episode myself, and I really enjoyed the conversation. I feel like it was a good a good conversation in that with two guys who whose opinion, whether I always agree with their takes or not, I appreciate the way they go about thinking of things and don't just react to the moment. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. And if you haven't heard it yet, I encourage you to do that as well, a lot about where this organization is going forward. All right, um, I'm gonna w- I want to get to a couple of things here. Um, I have tried to uh, decompress and sort of stop thinking about a couple things with this team, but you know, it is still fun to discuss the, these things. Um, and to that end, I still jumped on Ron Rivera's Zoom call today. Um, the biggest news out of that Zoom call is about one of the players, Jamin Davis, uh, had. Is going to have shoulder surgery. 
He is out for the year. The injury occurred in the Miami uh, loss last week. Uh, tough blow for, for Jamin just not to be able to finish out the year. And obviously now he's going to have to deal with some kind of a recovery. I don't believe we know the exact timeline on that. Obviously, it'll be past the into the offseason. Uh, the real interesting point here beyond this season, of course, with Davis is what does a new regime think of him? I don't see how you're picking up a fifth-year option uh, on him based on what we have seen. And again, this will be a group that did not draft him. Uh, can he play and help them next year? I mean, you know, you can't have stars at every position, and he's been okay in some cases. Obviously, he has been rough in the coverage, and I did write about that in the story I have up on The Athletic. So, uh, tough blow for Jamin Davis. We'll, this is a good example, though, of like sort of why this roster construction has been kind of wrought from the start. You know, we all know just because you draft somebody with a high pick or at all doesn't mean there's necessarily expectations or that there's a, it's not a guarantee, I should say, that that player will be good, but at least could be interesting. Like, let's see. They don't have a single player, I don't believe, in, who fits that vein. I mean, I, I'm no disrespect to the John Harris's of the world, but I'm not really counting the UDFA types, especially since we've seen nothing to suggest that there is going to be a jump there. In any event, we'll probably see more Khalid Hudson, who is another one of their many free agents. Um, I've liked what I've seen from Hudson this year, but in doses, so we'll see what he does with presumably a larger role. As for other injured players, R- Rivera said, uh, Emmanuel Forbes, James Smith-Williams, Sadiq Charles, all will be checked out this week. Sounds like they could be available. Sounds like Rivera was more optimistic on Forbes in particular. And obviously it would be really good to see him out there for these last four games just to hopefully get a better feel for what, uh, for, for, you know, what he's about and have him, um, you know, hopefully be able to put put a little... Uh, shine on what's been an otherwise kind of long and gloomy season. I shouldn't say long. That's that's a judgment call. But it's been obviously a rough season for him. Uh, Derek Forrest, Rivera said, still needs to get checked out. And Brian Robinson is expected back this week. He left the game, uh, the last game, a little bit early. I believe that was a hamstring injury there. Um, beyond that, look, obviously the Rams, a tough opponent. Or, you know, the Rams have been playing much better lately. They nearly took out Baltimore in Baltimore. So uh, we will see how that goes. I don't have particularly high hopes for Washington, assuming that the Rams do what they're expected to do. You know, if the Rams hold up their end, I imagine they will win. And I probably will say that for the next four games as well. Uh, which, of course, is not the worst thing in the world. If you're, you know, thinking big picture and the commanders in their draft situation, um, there were five teams that had four wins going into this week. Two of them already won, the Bears and the Jets. Two other ones are playing right now as we're talking. The Titans, who just literally tied the Dolphins uh, 7-7 as I'm uh, talking, and the Giants as well. So we'll see how that goes. But, you know, I think there's also two teams with three wins, Arizona and New England. Arizona is interesting to me. I know they only have a three-win team, but they're 2-2 two and two since Kyler Murray came back. So I think we need to look at them on that front. I don't have their schedule in front of me, but Kyler Murray certainly gives them a puncher's chance and then some in some games to win. So I would expect um, Arizona to have a shot at getting four or five wins. We'll see what that does for Washington. Um, Obviously, when it comes to the draft, the question is who's going to be running that show. Um, I did, you know, as I said, I'm 
out of town, but I, you know, I'm still doing, been checking around, you know, even before I went away about kind of where we're at in this process. And I think you guys have heard me talk about this. This process started far earlier than I think any of us imagined, even if you weren't questioning their playoff shot, didn't think, you know, they would be go from four and five to four and nine. Here they are, of course. But just because we collectively have sort of moved on to the offseason, that's not how the league necessarily works. So in case you're getting frustrated, hey, what's going on? What's the deal? You know, obviously teams can't even interview candidates who are on current teams until like around January 9th. But they have been, you know, doing their homework for weeks now uh, and, and, you know, really kind of getting a feel for the landscape of the league. We know that they hired Eugene Shen already to work as director of uh, football or VP of football strategy, overseeing the analytics department, essentially. Where else are they going to go? Um, so, you know, my understanding is, you know, they have been, you know, doing their homework around the league. They're doing a pretty good job of being stealth about it. I've talked to some people who would like to know kind of what their plans are. Do they want the coach-centric model again? Do they want to hire a GM first? What about a president of football ops overseeing um, all of it? Uh, you know, we all know about analytics, but like, you know, that that's a, a Josh Harris staple, but to what end, right? I mean, wh- where's the, um, you know, what is he looking to do? I, it's been a quiet, it's been quiet according to people around the league who, like I said, would like to know um, what's going on. So that um, is interesting in and of itself. Um, I think my guess would be, well, you know, there's always the, some rumors that could come out or a report, but I think we probably won't really get a feel for where things are at until perhaps going into the last week of the year. And I don't even mean by then we'll necessarily have names, but I think we may, or like the full list of names, we may start hearing more at that time would be my guess in terms of just how time frames generally work around the league. So we will see um, if that is uh, how things unfold. Uh, other than that, uh, I'm going to jump out of here. Uh, I hope to have another podcast towards the end of the week, um, but I will be at a minimum back on uh, for the Rams game this week here in L.A. Yes, I like saying here in L.A. Um, all right, let's get to my conversation with Logan Paulson. Uh, as I said, Logan, uh, always a great insight. We didn't focus a ton about how to how to fix anything. It's more of just about you know what's he seen so far, what, what and thoughts on Sam Howell, and how does this team. You know, you still got to perform. You still got to, you know, show up. Uh, and we discuss how he has been on teams that have had to deal with that. So here's my conversation with Commanders analyst Logan Paulson. I should say you can find Logan, of course, on the Commanders website. He's got the Take Command podcast with Craig uh, Hoffman on uh, the Odyssey app. And he is on Instagram at Logan underscore Paulson 80. Two. All right, here we go. Logan Paulson on the Standard Grimaldi podcast. All right, so I was explaining to Logan that I'm planning to go out to LA a little bit early uh, ahead of the game, do some of my bye week stuff out there or or the days leading up to the game out there. Um, and I was asking for suggestions. What's it, like when somebody says, you're, you know, you're, an, you're a Southern California guy, what's like the thing somebody has to do if you're from your perspective? What's something somebody has to do if they go to LA? 
Oh man, uh, that's a good question. So I got a lot of friends and stuff back there because obviously I went to school there. I grew up there, so that's usually what I'm doing. I'm hanging out with friends and family mostly. But you know, like they've got Universal, they got Disneyland down in Anna. Like that's so like literally anything you could think of, you could probably find it to do there. Like going to the beach is always fun. I know it's like the middle of winter, but the weather's probably going to be nice, so might as well check the beach out. Um, <clears throat> food's great. I mean, whatever you want to do, man. There's something there's something there for you, and that's why LA is. Uh, is uh, is such a fun town to visit i think it really is i went um the first thing i did like when we finally got out of the first wave of covid and you know we were all been locked up and and that was the first thing i did as i went there um and uh it was great i did all kinds of you know went up and down the coast saw comedy shows ate yeah. good places um i looked at the weather though like it says at night the low is like in the high 40s yeah it gets a little chilly at night but it should be fine during the day probably like mid 60s or something like that it was like like 70 something yeah yeah nice right i I mean look anything is better than uh you know some of the nonsense (laughs) we we're starting to deal with here and even this isn't even that bad relatively uh speaking um all right well so do you get like excited when you go back out there for uh for an excuse like this uh yeah, I mean I won't be going. Oh wait, oh actually, wait, yeah, you're, you're I, not going. I do all the local stuff. Yeah, they send the cooler guys out. They send Tana and B Mitch and Brian Colbert. Those guys go out there. So that that'll be them, and I'll be back here watching from studio. But I'm okay with that. You know, it's it's fine. It's fine. Mm. All right, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to renegotiate your next uh, your next contract <laughs> to uh, get you on the road. All right. Um. Look, look. Th- there's no easy way to get into this other than to say things are not going well at Nashburn right now. Wait, really? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, no. It's a true story. Um, What's it? Tell me like this. And I should have, I meant to look this up, but I I didn't. You obviously played a while in the league. You played at a high level in college. Uh, I I don't know if you had a situation like this where, you know, it it feels like it's sort of going to get a a slog to the finish and, you know, everything is just not working either way you've been in some tough spots i'm sure over your career what's it like in a locker room when this is happening when you're giving up 45 points every game the losses are piling up and and all the focus starts being about what's going to happen next year yeah you know i've um i've been a part of a couple teams like this you know 2013 here 2011 here um you know 2016 in chicago was like this and it's tough, man. It, it's very, very challenging because I think, you know, you build relationships, you build friendships with the staff and you're trying to make sure that people don't get fired, but it's happening. There's nothing you can do about it. And so it really just comes down to very like selfish motivations, honestly. Like, what can I do to make sure that I am in the NFL next year? It's not even with the team that you're with, you know, like when I was in Chicago, I was like, am I putting good enough film out there that I could get signed again? That's really what it comes down to because what happens is guys get disenfranchised. They don't play hard. They don't play well, and they don't get picked up after, after seasons like this. So that was my big motivation. And obviously anytime uh, someone's getting fired, I think people kind of flippantly discuss the firings of coaches all the time, but they're moving. They're going to have to move their family. They take the kids out of school, find new housing, look, all that stuff. And it's just not fun. You're getting separated from people that you've worked with for the last four or five years, depending on the situation. So it can be very, very challenging, and it's it's gross. It's a, there's nothing really positive about it. And again, my only motivation during those team during those really bad when I was on those really bad teams was just do what you have to do to make sure you're you're an NFL football player next year. You know, um, by the nature of 
doing this or if I mean, anybody can could could do this but like you know you, you look up hey who is this coach i've heard this person's name or what's going on or whatever or even just the people who are on the staff and you look up their bio in wikipedia or something and for so many of these coaches you see like they start off there's like you know eight yes. to ten different places and it's not like it's like they went from the high school in uh loudon county to the high school in fairfax county they they, right. they go from some junior college in alabama to a low-level college in Utah to an East Coast, like it's all over the place, and it's happening frequently, and and, that, and that's just got to be an insane deal. I say this as the person who essentially has not moved, other than like minor spots here or there. I'm basically still <laughs> in the same place I more or less have been my whole life. So uh, I'm the other extreme. Yes, right to that. But yeah, I mean, that, it's just it's just such an insane life. And you're right, we we definitely do not take it. Um, we don't appreciate the human aspect of that. Now, yeah. in fairness, like at the higher end of that, this is why they all get they get paid the good yes. money. I mean, this is part of the deal. Um, but you know, in terms of like the lower, the the, the sort of the more positional assistants or people below that, it, it is a it is a wild journey, and to have such uncertainty, you know, it's got to be tough, obviously. Yeah, and so like you know, when I was looking to get into coaching after I retired, there was a couple opportunities, and one of the things I kept going back to is just looking at coaches resumes it's like if you do good you have to move if you do bad you have to move there's no way to kind of have like a normal lifestyle and like you said like for you know for for the head guys for the big big time coaches like mike was the guy when i was here or coach fox when i was in chicago like they were getting fired you know i it's tough but you know they're getting paid a lot of really good money it's the, the position coaches that i think that are or the, the bottom members of the staff the quality control guy who is using this as a stepping stone and it doesn't quite pan out for him. And he might not be coaching next year. You know, he might be at some high school somewhere and, and kind of be out of the, the coaching circuit. So those are the guys that I, you know, I personally really feel for obviously any coach who gets fired is really, really challenging, but it's the, it's the guys on the staff that no one's talking about that have the the tougher road for sure. So I mentioned the defense, you know, they're giving up all the points and, you know, things have been deteriorating since they made the trades of moving Montez Sweat and Chase Young, but it's not like it was good before. It's just right. It's just been getting been getting worse. And then obviously it all leads to Jack Del Rio and Brett Wieselmeyer getting fired. Um to sort of I guess put a bow on all that. Obviously it goes without saying the defense was expected to be the anchor for this team this year. That if Sam Howe can perform well and just defense does like it did last year, hey, who knows? Maybe uh, you know, may- maybe the playoffs or a winning record are, are, are there. Who knows? It never materialized. As you look back, and you know, hopefully we'll have time in the off season to really give the fuller autopsy. But when you look at this, like, what do you think is ultimately? I don't know. It's not. It's never one thing. But what's sort of top of the list for you as to why this defense has just unfolded? Uh, you know, uh, unraveled. I guess the way that it has. I mean, the highest level thing for me is just the lack of pressure in conjunction with the coverage. I think when you look at the good defenses we played the last couple of weeks, Miami, Dallas, you just see how important that element is. Like when, when, the, when the pressure's there, um, secondaries improve. And I think when you look at um, Dallas, for example, the way those guys play in the back end, they are taking chances. They are taking opportunities. They're designing coverages. Dan Quinn's designing coverages, knowing that the rush will get home. It's the same thing with Vic Fangio in Miami. Guys will take chances. So a perfect example in the Miami game, um, you know, it's the two-minute situation. Um, Sam's in the pocket. They're running like a CO concept with a clear by number one. So it's like an out and a corner, and he's reading that. And then on the backside, Terry's running a dig. And uh, Miami's in quarters coverage. So, you know, think of your Madden. They've got divided the field in the four quarters. It's the umbrella pushing back. 
and they, the dig is wide open. And so, you know, if, if, if Sam doesn't like the corner, he could easily get to the dig, but there's pressure and it ends up being a sack. He's, or he's flushed from the pocket. He has to throw it away. There's the same sequence. It's the third 17 in the low red. The commanders are in quarters coverage. They run a very similar concept. What something I would call a flood, but it's a flat an out and a go. They, the commanders match it really well. Tua pulls the ball down. That's exactly what you want. The rush doesn't quite get home and he hits the backside dig for a huge completion. So you've mortgaged, you've designed this coverage, right? To kind of match a concept. You've done your job. The rush doesn't get home and ends up being a 17 yard completion. Now there's that element. And I just think that the general idea that the secondary has not lived up to expectations, you know, I think you draft Emmanuel Forbes and I think he has had flashes this season. Like I think to that new England game where he looks like a first round draft pick, he looks like he's doing the things he needs to be done, but been a little underwhelming us uh, and you've as a result put St. Juice in more challenging situations you can tell the guys in the back end aren't communicating well aren't executing well obviously losing Derek Force is a big element of that so I think that to me is probably the biggest thing is just the lack of consistent pressure and then the lack of consistency in the back end of the defense and I think one of those things could have covered for the other like if the secondary had played really really well and been dialed in on stuff could have elevated a bad pass rush or a, a, an underachieving pass rush, you know, when Chase and Montez were here in terms of production. Um, or if the rush had been really dynamic and excellent, the way I think we all thought it would have insulated and covered up a lot of the stuff in the back end that you're seeing now. So to me, that's the biggest thing. And that's like, you know, kind of the foundational piece of running good defense. So I think that's probably like a pretty, it's a pretty glaring issue, but um, that this is the result when that doesn't happen and you can't get that worked out. Um, you you know you're kind of you're historically bad in terms of defensive production yeah no you mentioned the secondary you know look obviously the defensive line before the trade I think I thought they were fine all year I just don't know if they were like for the investment financially Correct. in traffic it was yes. like not an overwhelming thing early on in the year those first two games were flashes Deron Payne has his personal three and out and Montez Sweat's doing yes. some stuff where it looked like maybe they would get to that imposing level Ultimately, they didn't, but it did feel to me like all year that the secondary was the group that just didn't even come close to what I, I, I agree. I think a lot of us were thinking, you know, it could be a, a step up off of what we saw last year. And I don't know how much of that was Chris Harris leaving and Brett Wieselmeyer taking yeah. over. Obviously, Derek Forrest got hurt, but it can't be like he, you know, can't be that big of a deal. He wasn't playing. He was. But he he wasn't like crushing it when he got hurt. Well, I think the thing there that you've kind of pointed out there with the players and the coaches that are leaving is just the communication element. And when you look at good defensive backfields, I think when you look at Miami, for example, look at Dallas, those are the two that come to mind. It's just the way they communicate, you know, and just building those relationships. And Derek is a vocal guy. And I think he would have maybe grown into that vocal role. Chris Harris is a vocal coach that, you know, at practice was constantly and so consistently being like, what are your rules? Who are you talking to? Who's your help? What's going on? And I think they've lost a little bit of that. So I think even though Derek Forrest, you know, wasn't playing great, like you need glue guys, you need character guys. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting to me, like as a, as a small aside, like when Cody Barton plays, Jamin Davis plays better. And I think it's not because Cody's like this all world amazing player. And I think he's playing good football. He played good football against Miami. Let me just say that. But I think he is really good at communicating and helping direct Jamin. And, and that is an important skill set that I think, um, that the staff is the, the, the defense. Let me just say that the defense seems to be lacking at the moment. And I think this is the result of that. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think that makes, that all makes a lot of, a lot of sense. So 
like I said, I don't really want to like look back too much. But let me like ask beat you a, this: beat a dead horse. What's that? Beat a dead horse. Well, you know, I mean, we've all we've all done it to this point. I mean, what, what, what's <laughs> what's there to say? Um, but you're you're an X's and O's guy. Um, yep. whatever happens, there's gonna have, somebody's gonna have to be the defensive coordinator here next year because obviously Jack Del Rio yep. was was gone. So when you look at like what could that defense look like? What we what we feel comfortable with, I think, is saying John Allen, Deron Payne are back. Yeah. Jamin Davis at a minimum has one year left on his rookie deal. We'll see if, what they do with the fifth year option, but he's back. Yeah. The secondary, you've got St. Juiced, you've got Forbes, and basically, well, and you got uh Forrest, uh Percy Butler, Quan Martin. We'll see what happens with Cam Curl, a free agent, and some of the other guys as well, plus what they do. So lot lot of lot of lots up in the air from the roster. But from your perspective, as you look at where the league is today, what's what's the defense you would like to see? somebody somebody implement uh you know either based on the pieces here or just based on what you think is kind of working in the league right now yeah that's a that's a really good question i think um i think the defense that is probably the most palatable at the moment is the defense that is being run in miami i think that's the most common defense you see a four down structure with a heavy emphasis on being plus in coverage situations and to be fair to Jack, they were trying to run a version of that here. And I think like with all things football related and all things in terms of elevating and becoming a good football player uh, or good football, good, good unit, excuse me, the devil's in the details. And, you know, Vic Fangio coaching that group down in Miami, um, you can tell they are super detailed, right? They're super detail oriented in terms of what they're doing. The coaching's lined up, the assignments are lined up and it wasn't like that at the beginning of the year, but it's like that now. And I think, that's something that I think is a very it's it's a solid group of, it's solid defense and I think it's something that does really well or a version of what um, the New Orleans Saints run or um, I guess the Atlanta Falcons also run it kind of this that's probably slightly more aggressive in terms of coverage concepts a little bit more man a little bit more press but I think something like that where it's a very clear defensive vision that understands the importance of stopping the pass while playing an aggressive aggressive with your front four even though you're down from a number standpoint in the front so that that's kind of what I would like to see um, and again you never know um, what's going to happen you know because like I think like if Wink Martindale came here I think that's a nice addition but you're you're riding a little bit of a a wave of high variance play um, or the guy like in uh, Minnesota, I think is an excellent defensive coordinator. You're writing a high variance in terms of pressure. I, I think both. Brian the Flores, I just, yeah. Both the defenses I just described kind of walked that line. They have good pressure packages, but they really understand the importance of coverage and they understand how to maximize the front four with the pressure stuff they're doing and run stunts and, and pass game stunts. So that, that I probably want to see a version of that. The, the, the you know look I, I think people listening know i'm i'm never gonna uh try to tell someone like you uh what, what what to make of x's and o's or film or anything like that the one thing i do always wonder about though is when you see this defense especially when they had the four guys the yeah. the four linemen is that we kind of knew sweat was on the left end then Payne, then allen then chase young and there really didn't seem to be a lot of variance maybe they would run, run some stunts but beyond that like we kind of knew where they were whereas we see Dallas will have Micah Parsons lined up here, there, and everywhere. Miles yep. Garrett's doing like crossover, fake crossover dribbles in the middle of, uh, right behind the defensive line. We see these changes. Is that, I, I, it just feels like something like that needs to be more in play. Like take your players and make them, make the offense never quite know where they are. Is that being too simplistic or, or, or is that just something that should be, do you think should have been more incorporated with what they had here? 
I definitely think it's something that should have been more incorporated. And I think, you know, I, I think the the ability to adjust as a defensive or offensive play caller is super critical, right? It's super critical and finding matchups. Really, that's what you're doing. Offensively, you're trying to find advantageous matchups and defensively, you're trying to find advantageous matchups. So when you look at, I think, um, you know, I think the two examples you gave with Miles Garrett and Micah Parsons, they are looking, they're hunting, they're trying to maximize that player because they understand he's a special talent. And I understand Montez and Chase, you know, are different, stylistic players from Micah Parsons and Miles Garrett, but I do think you could have done more to maximize them. Also, I think, you know, when you're talking about defensive scheme, what, you know, I kind of talked a lot about the back end, right. And what they're doing there, but I really like what San Fran does and Houston does and Cincinnati or Cleveland does in terms of maximizing their defensive line. Like they play a true crash nine defense. And so what that means is the defensive end lines up in a wide nine technique. So outside the widest person of the offensive formation and they are rushing the passer every play. And they stop the run on the way to rushing the passer. And I think encouraging that aggressive nature in the defensive front is something that leads to better defensive production from those guys. So, like, I think I think one of the things that Jack got into a little bit, and, and I think there's perfectly reasonable explanations for this, is he tried to kind of be right all the time with the defensive front and the defensive personnel, as opposed to saying, this is what we do really well. This is what we want our defensive line to do. We want them to be hyper-aggressive and attack this offense. And it got them out of some of the stuff. It, by giving them more responsibilities, it made them less aggressive. So like when you watch Nick Bosa, for example, Miles Garrett, um, Will Anderson down in Houston, they, they're thinking about one thing, and that's getting sacks. And I think that would have been made potentially advantageous for this group just to kind of be like, hey, take off some of this confusion. Take out, say, take out some of this gray and let's go hunt. So I do think, to your point, developing hunting searching for matchups changing the rush angle for guys and also just simplifying what they're doing and making it very clear as to what they're supposed to be doing would have been very very helpful in terms of increasing their production i believe you mentioned sacks i think somewhere sam howell just winced um <laughs> so that's my uh smooth transition to, to to talk about the offense um you know it's funny right obviously the last two weeks have been the final scores have been really uh, lopsided and bad. They've now lost what uh, four in a row since the Seattle yep. game. In terms of Sam Howell over that stretch, I mean, like the Seattle game, he did some good things. It's been, um, you know, I, I liked what he was doing sort of in the first half against Dallas, or at least late in the first half when he had the the touchdown drive. But needless to say, it's been a, a much bumpier ride than since we've talked since we talked last. Uh, three pick sixes in consecutive games. True here um you know the sacks have been there was a stretch where it seemed like it was getting a little bit better it's getting maybe a little little spottier now again so i guess tell me where you're at right now because obviously yeah. the big question it going forward is is sam Howell the guy and we don't you know we don't know what's going to look like but where are you at right now with sort of the sam Howell journey well i think it's it's no coincidence that his production is gone down a little bit as the defenses has gotten better. Like say what you want about the Miami, that Miami defense. They're playing really good football right now. Dallas is one of the highest. I think they have the highest pressure rate of any team in the NFL at 44%. They're excellent groups. And so obviously I was expecting there to be a little bit of a struggle for Sam. And I think the thing that sticks out to me is that we, on our, on the command center podcast I do with Craig Coffin, we reviewed kind of five offensive plays that were, you know, kind of questions about whether Sam needs to elevate the play or, or the execution isn't there. And when you watch him against Miami, it becomes very clear that it's not all on him and he's not being put and put is the wrong word. 
the execution of the offense is not at a level that is allowing him to show the best version of himself. So for example, the timing by the receivers in terms of clearing zones and creating space, not there, the protection for the offensive line, which a group, honestly, that I think has been playing pretty consistently over the course of the year. Like I know they get crushed for the sack number and all that stuff, but I think they're like a 17, 16, 15 type group in the NFL, you know, kind of that middle tier group. Um, They had a tough outing. And then, like, how does Sam maximize what he's showing you if the timing by the receivers isn't right, if the offensive line isn't protecting well? And I understand there are opportunities for Sam to kind of make some big boy, like, anticipatory throws. But I also believe, like, the receivers, in terms of timing those routes and creating correct distribution, could probably help him out a little bit. So I think it's multifactorial. And I think when you watch the film, it makes sense as to why there's been a regression by Sam that's kind of outside of Sam's control. Now, I also think that Sam does some good stuff in terms of elevating off schedule and maximizing the offense and all those types of things. Uh, But in terms of the consistent kind of big play production, I think there's many reasons as to why it's not there. And, um, and I think it makes the evaluation to me, it makes sense as to why Sam's been struggling. I still think you still have the same guy you had early in the season, but I think you need the, the rest of the offensive scaffolding to play at a level to let you get a fair evaluation of him. You know, what's so interesting is if you if they reversed the the season schedule, right? So the last game of the year is Arizona. Yeah. Sam would likely have struggled coming out of the gate because the teams that they were would be playing were better. You mentioned Dallas, obviously Dallas twice, San Fran, they just Miami, all these things. Yeah. Let's, let's, we'll just assume that they don't bench him for Jacoby Brissett, whatever. But if that if that happens, but then the season gets softer as it goes along, we might be going, oh, Sam's improving. Sam's getting better. He's facing these teams that are not as good. I mean, the Eagles right. even a team that's good in totality, but their defense has obviously been 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 struggling. We might view it as improvement, and I and I guess I'm wondering what like I'm thinking like well, what is the actual storyline here? It is like you said, the schedule's gotten tougher. So it's maybe not like he's gotten worse. It's just that the things are that's more challenging. And I and, and what I'm wondering is at the end of the year when somebody has to make a decision about what who's the guy, how do they look at it? Do they look at a guy who in totality wasn't bad, or do they seek a guy that was fading regardless of how they picture the context? Like I, I think that's whole I don't know. I, I find that kind of interesting. No, and I think that is really interesting. And that's why the evaluation of him is so challenging at the moment, because I think you saw this year, you know, like some really high level stuff from him, some big time throws, some excellent play, um, the ability to extend plays, the mobility, the arm talent, all those things. And those things still exist. But now the margin for error against good defense goes from, you know, 20% to 5%. And that's what you're seeing. Like there are, there were concepts against Miami where there's, nowhere to go with the football and the timing of the rush and the distribution of the route. Like there's nowhere to go with the ball. And so either he's elevating or he's off rhythm. And that's something where I would say like kind of what I was talking about, like, can you, can we protect better? Can we distribute this concept more quickly as receivers? All those things are super important, but against better defenses, it becomes more challenging and those details become ever so more important. And I think that's why I'm not as worried about Sam because I've watched the film and I understand kind of the challenge that he was presented with. Um, and hopefully EB watches the film and says, what are some ways that I can elevate him going in the last couple of games of the season to help us um, to, help, to help everybody see the talent that Sam has and show that he can play against these uh, more talented teams. Um, 
I'm Erie in season. So I'm, I'm, I assume you haven't had a chance to really study the college quarterbacks that could be coming out. So we'll bring you back sure. uh, during the off season or whatever to, to, to discuss those options. Um, but I wanted to ask you this, you mentioned the receivers and, and getting open and things like that. Um, you know, we're coming off a week where Terry McLaurin had zero catches against Miami. We're coming, you know, 13 games in Jahan Dotson has obviously been far less um, impactful game to game than it felt like he was a year ago. Terry doesn't have a hundred yard uh, game this year. Curtis Samuel has been better for sure, but um, you know, he's a free agent. Sure. So I don't know what his future is going to be with this team. ESPN has this stat. Uh, they, they they have some ways to grade, to judge receivers in various categories, including getting open. Sure. Uh, I'm not hundred percent sure how they define open, but okay. You know, um, and Terry and Jahan are in like the bottom 20 of the league in that stat as you're watching this thing unfold over the course of the year what do you kind of how do you how do you sort of assess why the receivers have not been as impactful this year as you would have hoped is it something they're not doing is it what sam is not doing is it the the play calls i know it could be a combination but for you what's sort of the thing that kind of stands out as to why that's been a little bit of a disappointment yeah and that's, that's a really good question probably one that we could spend three or four hours talking about in terms of football nuance and layering but i'll try to keep it concise so the answer is that it is a combination of everything. One, like I just go back to some of the stuff I watched in this Miami game. Like when you're running a crossing route, like you have to, in a West Coast offense, it's not necessarily about what you're doing to get open. It's how you run to open up other things in the concept. So I think there's a little bit of that. Um, like detailing concepts is a big thing. Splits, alignments, depths, like that stuff's super important. And also just making the play come to life, which is a receiver thing. Like when I'm running a shallow cross and I'm getting matched by a man, like how do I find ways to create separation on this? Because sometimes I feel like they're drawing it, they're running it the way it's drawn on a piece of paper. And that's something that, um, you know, I had a hard time with as a player is learning like when and when not to be creative. And sometimes in a new offense, that can be very, very challenging. But I do think, man, there's there's times where I'm watching those guys. I'm like, hey, put a little seasoning on this, like put a double stick, work the stem, you know, give a little move at the top. Like there are times and opportunities for them to do that. And they just haven't done that. So I don't know if that's an, a point of emphasis from the position coach or something that needs that, that the position coach needs to remind them of. But I, I think there are opportunities for that. And I think it's also important to point out that over the course of his career, Terry has not been a great separator. You know, he's always leading the league in contested catches. And so right. that's kind of statistically where he's been and he does make plays and he does have those opportunities. But I think when you're working with Sam Howell, a young quarterback, and you haven't really developed that relationship with Terry, the way that some other guys have and, and understanding of what Terry does. Well, when I see Terry and the defenders right there, I'm, I'm like, he's covered and I'm going to go someplace else with the football. And I, and I don't trust that I can throw this to Terry no matter what, and he's going to catch it. So I think that's also kind of factors into it. And, um, well, and I not the, Sorry, not to interrupt you, but like, you know, Taylor Heineke played his entire time here. Like he's going back to the couch, his sister's couch any minute. And the whole point with his, the, the joke was, you know, F it. I'm throwing it down there as Terry's down there somewhere. Terry's somewhere. And, then. Right. That's and exactly and right. clearly as a young quarterback, you're trying to limit mistakes. He's already, I mean, Sam is already leading the league in interceptions. So I can imagine he's like, well, well, is he really open? Or t-? And so, yeah, that, right. I mean, that, that does make sense. Yeah. So I think that's something that needs to be pointed out, but I, I really just think there's, you know, and then there's obviously the play calling, and I think the play calling is is fine. I think when I it's it's just so hard to determine. Like this is when you're watching film, and you're like, this is not executed the way I it should be executed, the concept, and that's on the players, right? But also, is the play call 
maximizing what these players do well. And so that's like an unknowable question. Cause like, if the execution's better, you probably got something, but am I asking them to do something they can't do is the other thing that I kind of go back to. And I think there are opportunities like that where it's like, Hey, you know, Terry's really good at X let's have him run more of those types of routes. And I don't always see that from them. And when you watch like Miami's offense, for example, or you watch the, the, the Cowboys offense, you see kind of, a better understanding of how to maximize certain players in an offense. And I also have to point out that when you are down and you're down big, the game flow dictates, you can't get to all the stuff you want in your playbook and it makes it very challenging. So I think there's many layers to that um, and many reasons why. And I think, um, you know, coaching is a factor. The players are a factor and understanding is a factor. And um, it's, it's, I think it's just frustrating to see that, that, that three headed monster at this point of the year. For sure. Um, I know I got to let you go in a sec, but just the last thing. So to the point of the play calling, um, feels like the last couple of weeks. I mean, obviously the Washington's getting beaten when teams beat you that bad. They're, they're a little chesty after games, but we heard some of the Miami guys and I think some of the previous opponents talk about how they kind of had a pretty good read on what Washington was going to do offensively. You had the pick six this week with uh, the Van Ginkle kid, where he seemed to recognize that when Andrew Wiley makes some kind of movement, he knows what's coming. Um, do you see something? Do you, you watch this every week? So like, I don't know, maybe it's unfair to ask you if you see some things that are, are, are pretty obvious week to week, but in terms of just the, are, I, I don't know, are, are they, is it being too simplistic or are teams getting too good of a read on what they're doing? And, and if so, you know, what, what do you make of them? There does seem to be patterns and comfort calls from Eric B. I mean, and that's true of every coordinator. I think the thing is, sometimes uh, there's not enough window dressing on it. So like every team runs concepts they like, right? Like when you watch, watch Miami, Miami is a perfect example. They are running drift 20 times a game. And so drift is just like this 10 yard in cut and it's thrown off a of timing and they just find different ways to do it. They're going to run it out of play pass. They're going to run out of a drop back. They're going to run it off a of three step. They're going to run off a of five step. They're going to run out of a trips and da, 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 right. And they just get to it a bunch of different ways. So you're always like, Oh, what's this? Because the motion's different. The setup's different. And it's really hard to key on it. And I do feel like there are times where EB is just kind of calling it, right. It's like, Hey, we're in a two by two and we're going to run sale or we're going to motion to a three by one and we're going to run sale. And there's a little bit of, a little bit of, of, of seasoning on it. Like I think a really good example is like, um, against the Giants, for example, they run sale out of uh, out of 13 personnel and it totally befuddles the Giants and Logan Thomas is wide open or they run a choice takeoff against the um, against the Miami Dolphins with Curtis Samuel from the backfield. They do a great job calling choice earlier, set it up, run choice takeoff, ends up being a huge play. So there are elements of like game plan plays where like this is really good. And then there are also opportunities, like I said, where the concept is not being executed effectively. So like on shallow cross, they ran one of these and it ended up in a sack. When I'm running the crossing route, I have to clear the defenders from underneath the sit, the 10 yard sit. And when the quarterback's at the top of his drop and you pause the tape and those guys are stacked over each other, like that's poor execution. So in some ways it's like, and the, 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 the Wiley thing is really interesting to me too. Yes, they previewed that, but there are tools and mechanisms to help make sure that the defensive end gets his hands down there, that the tackle can employ. So there are things here that say, yeah, like, could he be more creative in terms of play calling? Sure. But I also think the execution can be better. And I think like where that line is and where it's saying, Hey man, we need you to be more innovative as a play caller. 
is tough for me because it's like if they do this correctly and the protections there and 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 the concepts run the way it's supposed to run they're throws in this offense and um and so that that's the thing i have a hard time with now the question is 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 that is that is me calling this play putting the player in the best position to maximize execution and i think you can definitively say that not always and i think when you look at miami and they're just hunger and desire and motivation to kind of find those matchups and find those looks there is a little bit of a distinction there and that makes sense they're in year two of an offense so it's hard to compare that too but i to, to kind of wrap my thoughts yes i think there are times where you fall into familiar patterns but there are many reasons as to why it might not be successful uh go follow logan of course on the uh, commander's website he's all over that he's got the take command podcast on odyssey with craig hoffman uh on instagram logan underscore paulson 82 for various uh football thoughts and whatnot That's right. um and uh you know he's uh he's gonna be my uh unofficial tour guide tell me where to go in la <laughs> so i'll let you guys know how that goes if he steers me in the right direction or not sure. uh logan you the man thanks man thanks man appreciate it buddy all right big thanks to logan paulson for his time thanks to everyone here for checking out the podcast enjoy the week uh you know uh the commanders and rams on sunday um I'm really curious to see how they show up. You know, I mean, again, not so much about the wins and the losses, but just, you know, does the does the late bye week help anybody in terms of seeing this thing through? Because needless to say, the last two games were uh, particularly, well, actually, really, I mean, the last three games, including the Giants, I, I meant to mention this at the top. I was on with Kevin Sheehan today on my usual Monday hit on uh, the Team 980 at noon Eastern time. And as we were discussing it, Kevin said that he thought the three most, you know, uh, the three ugliest losses of the year, the two the two to the Giants and the Bears game, in no particular order. And I was like, if that's true, realize that that means that the two games they lost where they allowed 45 points and a game where they allowed 37, I think that's what the Bills had, That none of those were the worst. And that says something because, um, you know, obviously all those were pretty unsightly in their own way. But it's hard to argue with that Bears game in particular for me. And then losing to uh, Tommy DeVito. Or really, yeah, sure. There, there's a lot of bad losses this year, to say the least. Um, but I appreciate you guys checking out the podcast. Uh, we'll talk more. But that's it for now. Until next time. See ya.